0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of LSE, and we're very happy to have you with us for this fantastically interesting event on the fight for the open society and the future of philanthropy, hosted by LSE School of Public Policy. Welcome to those in the room and also especially welcome to those who are on the online. That was their way of saying hello. Let me start with an introduction. Lord Mark Malik brown is president of the Open Society Foundations, the world's largest private funder of independent groups working for justice, democratic governance, and human rights. He joined OSF as president in January 2021, having previously sat on the global board since 2009. Mark has worked to advance human rights, justice and development for more than four decades, serving as a, in a variety of roles, including head of the United Nations Development Program, as UN Deputy Secretary General under Kofi Anand, and as British government minister in the Foreign Office responsible for Africa and Asia, as well as in a range of other international institutions, civil society groups and businesses. For me, Uh, I have crossed paths with Mark on a number of occasions. We were vice presidents together at the World Bank, where Mark did a brilliant job as a political strategist and also presided over the first time the World Bank ever used the C word for corruption. Do you remember that, Mark? (laughs) Uh, And really opened up the institution uh, from uh, its history of being rather inward-looking and more secretive. We also worked together in the UK government where Mark was Minister for Africa at the Foreign Office when I was at the Department for International Development. And of course, we both currently work on the board of BRAC, which is the largest southern-based NGO in the world focused on poverty. And, uh, and we're both crossbenches in the House of Lords. But the main thing I remember about working with Mark is whenever you're around Mark, good things happen, things get better, and it's also fun. So <laughs> that, is my, uh, that, is my, uh, that is my abiding memory. memory. Tonight, we're going to hear a few words from Mark on the current state and future of the open society and those values around the world. And after that, we'll have a conversation initially with me, and then we're eager to hear from students, alumni, and friends, both in the hall and online. The online questions will be moderated by a colleague from the School of Public Policy. And those who are asking questions, we'd be grateful if you gave us your name and affiliation. And if you're following the event on Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Open Society. This event will be recorded and released as a podcast afterwards. So with that, let me turn to Lord Malik Brown. The floor is yours.
1: Well, Minush, thank you very much. And, you know, our friendship over many years is two very young vice presidents together at the World Bank, although I've never quite got over the fact you were younger. <laughs> uh, um, uh, through our collaboration and cooperation on so many things, it, it's a real pleasure to join you today and have a lot of friends uh, in the audience as well. And. You know, I'm thrilled to hear that Mark Lowcock had just launched his new book uh, here on uh, humanitarian uh, relief today. Um, he having like so many others been a long time friend here. Um, a- and let, let me just begin by saying that the concept of open society and indeed the foundations which carry that, uh, that name, you know, began here at the LSE. Um, George Soros is an alum here, Uh, what brought him to open society was first the experience of growing up under Nazi persecution as a Jew in Budapest, uh, followed by communism, uh, from which he fled and came as a very poor student to London and waited tables, uh, got a small scholarship, from a a, a sort of organization for for displaced Jews in London and allowed him to come and study at the LSE uh, where he of course, and I think we're gonna come back to this later, um, studied under the remarkable Karl Popper. And it's the experience of uh, that childhood combined with the formation of his academic ideas here at the LSE which led to open society. And, you know, open society is much more than just a sort of cheerleader for democracy and human rights. It's a philosophy expressed in many books that George has written uh, around uh, the agency of individuals and allowing societies to, uh, or ensuring that societies allow those individuals full expression and engagement uh, in society. Uh, And a belief that while individuals will make many mistakes, the collective strength and resilience of society will be hugely gained uh, by inclusion and and it's interesting because now we are engaged in a little bit of a rethink and a rebranding even uh, around um, the world we're living in now and while. The words of Karl Popper seem strange to a younger generation of OSF leaders. Uh, their belief in an OSF or Open Society Foundations, they say, which 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 is focused on. Building inclusive democracies, democracies which remove barriers uh, against inclusion, whether those barriers are around race or ethnicity or economic class or religion, uh, is a very, very powerful idea uh, for my colleagues at OSF today. Uh, it's, if you like, a sort of reimagining of the Popper idea in a new language of inclusion and diversity. Uh, for today's uh, world, but perhaps the more significant still sort of piece of history about open society was that George, having made a lot of money in his uh, career uh, in his sixties, turned to philanthropy big time, in fact in his fifties. and you know he he had a beginner's luck. He <laughs> invested heavily in Central Europe uh, and heavily in apartheid South Africa and within a few short years from the mid 80s to uh, the end of the 80s, in the case of Central uh, Europe, and uh, a little later in the case of South Africa, was part of these extraordinary winds where those walls fell, barriers did fall, democracy seemed to be on the ascendant. Uh, And the foundations went through a period of almost sort of triumphalist acceptance that the sort of democracy wave was not going to stop that we should instead focus on the qualitative issues around uh, democracy and human rights, making sure that discriminated groups didn't get left out, you know, of the new sort of democratic compacts in countries. So whether it was LGBTQI or or other groups excluded Roma uh, in, in Europe, for example, we very much became focused on making sure nobody got left behind and perhaps were guilty of taking our eye off the mainstream, the main ball, the main field of play and and slow perhaps to react to the fact that if you like on the main field, the game had suddenly started going in the other direction and that the democratic gains were, were being reversed and you know, Freedom House, the chronicler of the state of democracy in the world has reported 18 years of democratic uh, decline, as uh, as the the, we, the world has you know gone back from that sort of glorious 90s early years of this century uh, moment, and you know that in a way uh, has been a, a challenge, and you know I think as we reflect on it, uh, it's not just the challenge of the rise of authoritarian uh leaders in so many parts of the world, although i'm going to come back to that because it's it's a critical bit of it, but it's you know that doctrines, we were so devoted to like human rights. uh, were perceived by many revisionists writing about both human rights or democracy uh, in both cases to no longer be serving uh, society at large and in full. Uh, that these doctrines were applied to the few, but not the all, A- and you know that sort of sl- steady underpinning of the, if you like, intellectual case for human rights and indeed for for democracy was then compounded by the rise of uh, these new authoritarian democrats. In many cases, people who came to power by the ballot, uh, but you know, have have since hollowed out the democracy of their their country's institutions and you know it is you know we all hear the numbers about the decline of democracy but if you look at it from the point of view of a president of open society whose predecessors like i myself when i was at the un could go anywhere and travel anywhere and enjoy a welcome for the sort of the support we were bringing and the issues we were raising, we have seen, to use an old metaphor, the dominoes falling one by one. Mm-hmm. Uh, OSF has shuttered its doors now quite a while ago in China, um, when George Soros became appalled by the turn of direction in that, that country. Uh, but similarly, we've shuttered our doors in India, Uh, because under the Modi government, the requirements to operate would completely prevent us uh, speaking uh, or supporting the kind of open society actors we would want to support. You know, in Turkey, the former chairman of our foundation is in jail Um, uh, and the list uh, goes on. Uh, In Russia, again, we have obviously long since shuttered our doors. Uh, And just in the year and a half since I have uh, led the foundation, uh, we first had to evacuate our colleagues from Myanmar, uh, then from Afghanistan. uh, And we thought from Ukraine, although... What wisely, they refused to go further than Lviv. And uh, just yesterday, when I spoke to the head of our foundation, he was back in Kiev and planting spring flowers in the garden of the office, an office which only a month or so ago had had sandbags around it and was being used as a hospital for injured civilians. So, you know, there is a little good news in this, but that sense of contraction is, is real. So just a word, and I know we're gonna come back to this in the question, so I, I, I won't dwell on it, but just a word on, um, you know, the, the the solutions. I, I, and I think, you know, we, we have a little bit struggled, all of us as we think about it, you know, we're a wealthy foundation, as you heard, the wealthiest in this area, we spend about one and a half billion dollars a year. Um But, you know, that in some ways is a thin reed in a tearing tsunami of a wind in terms of some of the changes going on in the world, not least with the conflict uh, in Ukraine at the moment um and you know we are a thin reed when up against state power we don't have armies we don't have guns uh we have the ultimate soft power tools of of persuasion and principles and values on our side uh and you know so it is challenging to find the interventions and the partners that can arrest this deterioration of open society and you know, where we look for it is around a strategy which focuses in part on, and and centrally perhaps, on making democracy work for the many, as we've I said this earlier, as we've gone around this sort of strategy and branding exercise, uh, whether it is in Latin America, where our leadership are worried about the exclusion of indigenous peoples uh, from uh, the political, if you like, uh, arrangement and compact, or whether it is in in, in Africa, where uh, there is a fundamental sense that development and governance is something that is done to people, not by people, for people, uh, and in Eastern Europe, where our colleagues are beleaguered and oppressed by the sort of pushback on, on human rights and democracy. You know, everywhere, the central argument is, let's not just spend our time criticizing authoritarianism. Let's stand up a democracy model that works, that really is inclusive, which hears the voices of all, which responds to their needs and provides a governance uh, which uh, is uh, accountable to them and delivers the kind of support the human security, as it's sometimes called, uh, and uh, you know for them uh, and and their families, and you know that if we could get that core proposition right, uh, then you know around it the issue of support to human rights of challenging the kind of the vectors which have driven this change, uh, this adverse change in in the state of democracy, such as the rise of a, you know, really flawed media model and fake news and all that goes with it, you know, or uh, the rise of inequality, which is so directly feeding into this crisis of Democracy and the minds of ordinary people around the world. If we can help address those in innovative ways. Uh, then we can begin uh, to 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 reverse this. And if, above all, we can focus on the issues that people care about, whether it is climate, not as an abstract, but in the very real ways, it touches on people's lives in terms of loss of environmental cover, whether it, is, whether it is trees, ground soils, water, whatever. You know, Across a range of these issues, we are really trying to frame it as issues about rights and democracy and government accountability and delivery. And as I say, we're just one voice amongst many, but I think as we move in this direction, um, you know, we, we we hope we're going to demonstrate not just our own relevance, which ultimately in the great sweep of history is much less significant than the proposition we're trying to assert, which is that democracy can work for the majority. It is not necessarily something uh, only to be enjoyed by elites. And, you know, so we want to sort of take on the critics of democracy, if you like, on their own terms. And and just perhaps one last word about Ukraine, because I think, you know, it is challenging. And because I'm ex-UN, I get pressed on this a lot because, you know, 141 countries came through and voted to condemn uh, what Russia had done in the General Assembly, a smaller number, but still a sufficient majority came through to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. And there is no doubt across the whole UN membership a universal view with maybe only a handful less than, a, certainly less than 10 states uh, who, who really take exception to the point that, you know, Russia breached the cardinal rule of the UN system, uh, or particularly President Putin breached it. Uh, you know, strong countries don't invade weak, weak neighbors uh, without good cause and without a legal case for doing so, around uh, you know well well rehearsed international legal principles, and so a small African country with a stronger neighbour is as concerned by this as um, you know a, a European power. But what has distressed and frustrated. Uh, developing countries, as many of you, I'm sure, in this room and on that line have direct experience of, is this sort of Western preoccupation with crushing everything down to Ukraine and that issue, uh, this refusal to understand the wider context that Ukraine is just the latest in a series of global disruptions over the last decade, uh, you know, starting with the financial crisis, but going through the trade wars, going through COVID, in between Brexit, the Trump election, a whole series of shocks to the international system, which are compounded now to the point of, you know, rising inflation rates, rising energy and food prices, Prices, uh, dramatic ones, you know, not just that 30% of the international wheat market is produced by Russia and Ukraine, but that the fertilizer, which will secure next year's food crops, is heavily produced by Russia. So, you know, this feeling that the that much of the world is headed towards very high levels of debt, towards high inflation, lower growth, fewer jobs uh, in an environment where Food and energy are a much bigger part of household budgets, and would be the case here. And that the West is not hearing it; that they are so prote- focused on isolating Russia that they don't, they can't, if you like, walk and talk at the same time. They can't multitask and address um, uh, this wider economic crisis. And for us at Open Society, that kind of failure. To hear and respond to a problem which comes on the heels of COVID, where there was such a sense of vaccine injustice and inequality that it's left this, this really deep sense of frustration uh, in, in, in the leadership and peoples of regions such as Africa, but not exclusive, not only Africa, you know, a feeling that you know, there are two rules in the world. One for the rich world, one for the rest. And, you know, that's exactly the kind of threat to democracy that I'm talking about. You know, democratic governance is not just an issue at a national level. It's about global systems, too, which respond to people's needs, which are principles-based but driven by accountability and democratic ownership. So I think the challenge of renewal is not limited just to national government, or it's very much around international governments as well. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mark. That was sobering, especially hearing you say how many countries you've had to close offices in. I think I hadn't quite appreciated how much you're at the, you're at the sharp end as an institution of this crisis. So let me, um, let me start with Popper, which is where you started. in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, one of, the, one of the reasons he wrote it is he was writing in a time of war and he thought that democracies and open societies will not go to war with each other. And by and large, that's proven to be true. Um, do you think that this current return of war to Europe will, uh, will galvanize open societies and reverse the the kind of demise of democracies that you described in the state, yeah, the statistics yes. of Freedom House and others.
1: Well, I think it, it, you know, it may galvanize them. The trouble is, will it also kind of vulgarize and cheapen them? Because if you look back to the last Cold War, you know, uh, the American and Western option was a much better one in terms of freedom and and uh, standard of living than the Soviet one but it was nevertheless a security state version of it. You know, a lot of Americans were locked up uh, for the kind of uh, freedom of speech issues that we hoped Americans would never be locked up for again. And, you know, the same in, in, in Western Europe. So, you know, societies which have to be on a war footing and, you know, prioritize security tend to be societies which start to diminish human rights. So, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd sort of view it with some dismay. But having said that, manush I think you, you know, you have got a point, because I think, you know, maybe the word is it's going to focus as much as galvanize, you know, on these core democratic challenges, if it makes the West feel it's got to prove every day, that it offers a better governance model to people than the other side. And that therefore it, accepts the challenge on the t- same terms I've been talking about open society accepting it, which is it's less about, you know, vil- just vilifying your opponents, but about showing that democracy works, renewing democracy. Then, you know, I, I, I think it actually perversely could be a bit of a shot in the arm, but then you've also got to remember the other risk, which is the one I was just talking about of a, you know, West, which becomes so deaf to other problems in the world, that, you know, it, it, it in a sense, you know, you know, starts to f- pose the rest of the world a kind of false choice the world doesn't want to make. I mean, you know, i say a lot now that at the UN, I've never heard the term non-aligned movement used as much as it is at present. You know, this real sense of, look, we don't want to be partitioned into either a China-Russia bloc or a US-NATO bloc. Um, You know, we want a third way. And, you know, last time that happened with the new international economic order and the non-aligned movement, you know, these were countries, which did not enjoy the economic and political power they enjoy today. But when, you know, a combination of India, Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa and, uh, you know, and others start to echo that, and as I think they will, Mm. people will take stock. And I have to say, you know, if I had to choose which of those blocks I'd want to be in, I'd want to be in that third non-aligned block. Mm. Mm.
0: Quite, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of democracy. I mean, you and I could have a nerdy conversation about election administration, and constitutional machinery and the regulation of money in politics and the role of the media in the public square and how primaries are sort of, you know, and voting systems and all that stuff. Uh, But most people don't care. And at the moment, those who care about democracy have to compete with all the other issues that are occupying people's attention, uh, the pandemic, the economy, climate change, the resurgence of inflation, the, the, the pressures on household budgets, all those things. And so how can we get people who are preoccupied with all these other things to care about democracy again? And, and I'm thinking particularly around young people, because we're polling around whether young people care about democracy is quite worrying.
1: Um, Yeah, well, Manusha, look, you're right. We could have some very long conversations (laughs) on that. And, you know, I spent earlier parts of my life as a political consultant uh, to many sort of insurgent progressive campaigns around the world. And then a latter part, you know, flogging election machines and systems. (laughs) Um, So I I know my stuff on that, (laughs) but, you know, it is, I'm, I'm like the mechanic, and which you know who who knows what's going on under the hood of the car or behind the screen of the computer but in a world where you don't expect the owner of the car or the you know user of the computer to know what's happening behind the screen or under the hood and I I I think you know in a sense we have to accept that a lot of that sort of the mechanics of democracy will remain a, a a fairly specialist pastime but an important one because you know if the car stops and doesn't work, or the computer goes, the screen goes blank, you know, you've got a problem. But I think, you know, where you have to focus the sort of wider proposition of why this matters, is again, on accountability and and results. And, you know, I actually think in some ways, um, you know, what we tend to pit as just a, a sort of Manichaean struggle between authoritarianism and democracy is, is two other things at the same time. It's one, a struggle of incumbents versus challenges, because, you know, particularly coming out of COVID, uh, what we're seeing is incumbents who didn't manage it well, whether they are Democrats or autocrats, getting punished for it. And I think that's Going to kind of continue. And so, you know, in that sense, it's rather good news that there are a lot of autocrats in power because they're <laughs> incumbents. And I think quite a few of them are going to have a run for their money to be able to, you know, renew their mandates, even though they've tried to shift the behind the under the bonnet electoral machinery in their favor and use fake news and the rest. So I think Bolsonaro has got his back to the wall in um, in 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 Brazil. And while Modi does not yet have his back to the wall in India, his day will come, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Putin and some others, and certainly Erdogan in Turkey, I think will face an increasingly robust electoral uh, challenge. But the other one is a, if you like, demographic challenge. It's gerontocrats Mm -hmm. versus young leaders. And I think this Mm -hmm. may actually be the real key to change. You know, we've just in the last week been spending a lot of time thinking about Sri Lanka and, um, you know, really what's going, and, and, and how we can support the beginnings of a revolution or change, but which, you know, has not yet completely unseated a very corrupt ruling family of the rajapaksas uh, but you know needs to before international assistance is really going to come into play and 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 you know stabilize a country which can't afford food or energy imports at the moment and and you know what what will be the vehicle for that some kind of democratic renewal where some kind of new generation leadership will take over and you know i just see in so many countries in south asia but east asia as well southeast asia as well but you know in parts of uh africa too where you know this this is sort of aging corrupt leadership issue versus a youth mo- leadership which is struggling to break through but which has got demography on its side given the age structures mm. of these countries and you you know i've been predicting it was about to break through in the last three or four Nigerian elections. So I kind of, have <laughs> almost given up, predi- well, I have given up predicting, but, you know, if the clock is stopped at midnight, one night time, you'll be right. So, um, but, you know, in Kenya, the same thing, you know, two old generation candidates up against each other. Is that really where this is going to finish? Maybe, but I don't think it can hold on as a system um, for, for, for much longer. And even in the US, US, where you have a 79-year-old incumbent, you know, likely to be pitched against his 74-year-old predecessor in a rerun. Well, can that really happen, given the age structure of the US? We'll see. Maybe it will. But, you know, I think it will lead to, you know, reduced democratic legitimacy, reduced turnout all the rest of it. So, you know, I, I, I think we're seeing, and it's not just a normal age thing. It is that not in the US, but in the developing world, we've got this particular, and particularly in Africa, this particular age structure, but it's an educational issue as well. Um, you know, you've got a much great expanded higher education offering, um, you've got all the impatience in c- countries which are not creating jobs to match that greater educational attainment. And, you know, in country after country, I mean, if you look here in the UK, you see, you know, that the, there is now a age and education split in the vote, and there is in the US as well. Mm. Younger, better educated voters are Democrats or Labour here, um, you know, Older, less educated voters are conservatives or Republicans. And, you know, a version of that is playing out across the developing world, but stoked by this demographic issue. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think we're going to see a lot of change. And, I, you know, we look at Chile uh, uh, a, a admittedly struggling new president, but, you know, what, 36 years old or something, an ex-student leader. And, you know, I think across Latin America, it may be that we're seeing the first wave of this, where, you know, we're starting to see younger leaders, you know, really breaking through. Uh, yes. You, challenge you, Your spies had told me I was in Colombia last week. Well, you know, there, an ex-M19 guerrilla, um, looks set to probably win the presidential election next mm. weekend. And if not next weekend, then on a second vote, I think he's a bit older. He may be 50, but, you know, he, 62, he's a lot older, but he he's behaves as though he was young. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing like the, the diet of 20 years in the bush to, uh, <laughs> um, um, but, you know, so, but I'd be interested in answers for Andrews' view, but I I mean, I just think Latin America may be pointing the way towards a sort of, you know, generational shift. And in each of those Latin American elections, it's been around the sort of service delivery, you know, meet our needs, just make our economies, make our services work proposition. And I think that, you know, if if democracy can be about that again,
2: it works.
0: So in the the happy 90s, when you and I worked together at the World Bank, we had this model that open political systems and open economies were married to each other and they went together. Um, But today we've got this rise of illiberal or authoritarian capitalism you know we actually don't have many autocracies left in the world other than North Korea but basically the idea that your economy is open to the world has has that that argument has been one yeah. but the divergence on the political side is uh, is very strong why do you think that is what happened well
1: you know I I, I think these so-called open economies were actually weighted economies. I mean, the playing field was tilted towards, Mm. you know, domestic uh, business elites and establishments in many cases. Uh, And, you know, the international actors who came in often escaped tax and regulation in these new jurisdictions they were operating. So, Mm. you know, both the domestic elites and the kind of international operators and investors taking advantage of light investment rules you know became sources of great grievance i think mm. to that younger domestic demographic uh, i i i've been mentioning and you know interestingly george soros who who who, who you know My colleague, Darren Walker, the head of the Ford Foundation, wrote an essay recently about George, pointing out that, you know, unlike the earlier generation of great philanthropists, Carnegie, Ford, Rockefeller, all of whom believed in capitalism, and whose perspective was, you know, um, you know, capitalism works, but as Christians in the most part, not all, but mostly Christians, you know, we are going to give back the proceeds of capitalism to people, but not for them to change the system. George is a very strange and different political philanthropist who actually believes the capitalism that's made him rich is flawed. I mean, it's not that he wants to dismantle it and replace it by socialism, but he, he believes capitalism me- needs a much heavier regulatory hand mm. to make sure that it genuinely meets what you've described as open markets, rather than than than, than you know markets which. Just work for for for, for, for yeah. So you know he's always been against what he calls market fundamentalism, and you know I, I think it's a cautionary point we should have heard earlier because I think we all got a little bit seduced by this idea that you know leave it to the markets. But you know ultimately what it finally does is pitch markets against people's political rights um, because you know, markets operate around we'll put the money where we're best received and where we're going to get the best returns. And often that can translate into suppressed rights in supply chains, suppressed workers, wages, the lot. So, you know, I, I think we, we just failed to get that relationship right. And I think, you know, democracy works very well with markets as long as you know, markets understand that there is a role for those elected democratically to regulate those markets.
0: So let me ask you a little bit about the role of universities. So in the European Enlightenment traditions, universities had this special role as kind of bastions of openness and free inquiry, even when they were under a religious umbrella, uh, know in pre-revolutionary france or 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 you know in 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 the uk um do you still see universities playing that special role or do you think there's evidence that universities have become less open uh along with the rest of society
1: well you know it's a chance for me to praise you again because i somehow ended up on one of your alumni donor calls, even though I'm not an alumni. (laughs) George is the donor, not me. Um, But, you know, I was so impressed that the way, you know, you positioned the LSE in that presentation as, you know, being about trying to solve real world problems. Because I think, you know, there is a sort of ivory tower dimension to universities which can occasionally be quite exasperating to those of us you know in the real world although we've often would never have had the intellectual development that allowed us to play the roles we've had in the real world if it hadn't been for that ivory tower period of our lives so you know but you know I just loved what you were trying to convey of a university where learning was linked to trying to problem solve for people. And, you know, that goes straight to my proposition about a democracy that works, uh, that works for all. And um, so, you know, and I I know, you know, we, we have a network of universities that we support through the Open Society University Network. And you know LSE has been a beneficiary, not as great a beneficiary as I'd like to see it, given that George is an alum at this point. But, but, um, you know, what what that reflects George's own belief that universities, good universities, are forever mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of foundations are not. Yeah. You know, he really does believe that there is a sort of legacy role of great universities that you know. Can last for centuries. Um, I don't think he imagines that the foundation will last for centuries. He would want it to go out with a spectacular bang, <laughs> having you know fought and hopefully won uh, okay. some big democratic battles out there. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think, as you say, that you know, universities, I think, having you know, are about patient encounters of yeah. difference in places like the LSE, which are so international, students are forced to encounter people with very different backgrounds and views. And that's good practice for democracy.
1: I think so. You know, if I may, I mean, just perhaps one, because I didn't really, you're right. I mean, I didn't really quite address the central question. I mean, I think that, you know, for us, open society means all views are heard and that people res- respectfully debate them with each other and occasionally very robustly debate them mm. because views should be strongly Absolutely. held. And, you know, I think for us, you know, some of what has happened on campuses around the world is, you know, almost as distressing as a Trump or Erdogan uh, doing his stuff in their presidential palaces because where it does limit debate, you know, and, you know, where there is unreasonable deplatforming of people, you know, from, from us, you know, as a progressive foundation, nevertheless, because our top value is debate and intellectual engagement and you know the core popper idea is good ideas come from the clash of those of ideas you know we are very uncomfortable at some of the things you know done at the moment on on, in universities around this sort of free speech issue
0: yeah i'm proud to say we have never no platformed anyone in the history of the LSE, and we plan to keep it that way (laughs) Let me ask you about the foundation. So uh, often people have described the Open Society Foundation as sprawling. It's got a huge presence, huge number of grantees around the world on a huge array of issues. You've taken on this role uh, at a critical time in its history. Tell us a little bit about what you're thinking about in terms of the future of the foundation and also a little bit about its political role so there's you know it and its legacy you know the foundation has been is also involved in highly political issues probably more than any foundation that I'm aware of uh how how are you going to navigate that in a world in which politics is so fraught and uh and what would you like its legacy to be? Tell us a little bit more about this bang you're planning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, the the, the the just, I mean, on the first bit, the sprawling, um, uh, you know, some of you, I mean, Salil Chetty was a colleague at UNDP and is now a colleague at OSF, mm-hmm. will remember that the same word was applied to UNDP. It was described as sprawling. And, um, you know, we we, you know, made a huge point of trying to focus in on a handful of things that we felt we could do with sufficient resource behind them, you know, in a targeted number of countries that we were gonna make a difference. So there is a simple management discipline at the core of this, you know, Mm. you can't do everything. Mm. And, you know, the foundation had become sprawling for the best of purposes, partly because, you know, it had a series, well, George Soros particularly, but other members of his family, some of the leadership in the past, you know, were very given to pursuing new objectives without discarding old ones. So we were kind of a foundation with a kind of, which looked like a kind of collector's museum. of, You know, mm-hmm. we just added initiatives as, as time had gone on and, you know, not spun out enough or closed enough. Um, you know, some we had, I mean, we were one of the, Early actors in the early childhood space, and have very successfully spun that out. We've done some similar things on on uh, some of our drug work. So, it, it, but in general, we have just grown and grown and grown, and uh, and therefore, because resources remained relatively finite, it got spread thinner and thinner. And so, you know, the, the, the core issue is to focus for us is to focus back in on these key changes in the democratic landscape. And you know, where that has meant that we can do rather less of some of the things we'd done in the past, which were, if you like, the sort of finishing off the tributaries of democracy. And I'd mentioned <laughs> LGBTQI, for example, which we will continue to support. But, you know, but in truth, you know, I, I tweeted some research last week, which I thought made an important point, which is that, um, you know, in countries whose democracy is moving in the wrong direction there is a high correlation with the deterioration of LGBTQI rights, you know? (laughs) Uh, So by focusing on fixing democracy, Mm -hmm. you are not betraying uh, that other agenda, but you're saying there's a sequence here. Mm -hmm. We've got to get that basic democratic platform in place because that's the the journey which will allow us to to get those, you know, those... The, those other rights re-secured. and you know it's 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 hungrier country I've not mentioned, but which you know we're dismayed because you know there's an incumbent and an autocrat who just holds on through election after election or ban, but you know he, for example, put allowed an LGBTQI referendum to be put on the ballot. In this last election, and used it to mobilize his non-metropolitan rural base. You know? Right. So there's also the sort of political smart bit here. You know, how do you, you know, first try and defeat a guy like that and then come back to that issue uh, rather than getting yourself into a position where he can use the issue against, as a dog whistle politics. Yeah. So you know, I, and 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 that in turn takes me to your point about how political we are. We are political. We call ourselves a political philanthropy, and you know we're willing to take on issues that others won't. And that's again, you know, a founder with nerves of steel who made his money, uh, you know, gambling his fortune every day. Right, um, <laughs> this is easy, and, right? <laughs> and and, and um, you know, but he's willing to do it because you know, for him, the returns are huge when we succeed and when we win. But we're not, We, I mean, separately, through George personally and his family, they invest heavily in in, uh, particularly US politics. But, you know, for me, the rule is to try and keep the foundation out of direct, uh, you know, one side partisan electoral politics, but to come close. So for example, you know, in Brazil, you have your you have to vote over the age of 18 onwards but you're allowed to vote from the age of 16 you know 16 to 18 year olds in brazil um you know are overwhelmingly anti bolsonaro you know you would expect that so you know we happily support voter registration efforts and getting youngsters to vote and and go out and vote so you know but we wouldn't we wouldn't support the Lula political Arctic. party or something. So, okay. you know, so for us, it's very true to our, our, our mission, which is to get everybody's voice engaged and everybody to vote and to the ballot box. Mm. You know, even though we're very conscious often of the consequences of that, which is that, you know, different demographics or ethnic groups or classes, you know, don't split 50-50. They have, mm. you know, particular preferences in an election.
0: I have to ask you this because you're one of the most astute media observers I know. And I wanted to ask you about the relationship between the future of democracy and the media landscape. I mean, we all know the problem with the media, the business model has failed. And I, you know, you hear people, you know, the the business models for the media are the state, which is true in places like, you know, China and Russia, rich men by the media, or I have now heard a new argument uh, by a prominent media person that we need to think of the media like a foundation. It has to be like a charity, uh, which is endowed and able to support itself to retain independence. But without a viable model for the media, how do we have true democracies in which we have shared evidence-based facts and so on? What, what, what do you think about What's
1: the answer there? I think it's a huge issue. And, you know, we try to tack, we've traditionally tackled it through grant making, which has really been to two different sets of media one to a lot of the invested media operations. So, you know, groups like the ICIJ or mm. Bellingcat, which covers Russia. I mean, we we we're, 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 we're Pretty much all the groups who are doing the investigative journalism which traditionally would have been done by newsrooms you know we we, we support uh, we secondly you know have tried to in countries which have very very beleaguered uh local media particularly now increasingly social media but which is run professionally and is an attempt to keep an alternative voice alive you know we have also provided grant making to quite a few of those in quite a few countries. I myself, you know, have concluded and my colleagues very much share this, that, um, you know, that isn't actually any more enough and that we need to do two things. One, be very engaged in the global regulatory battle around the social media um, and we are. Um, uh, through a host of grantees in that space, and second, to actually use our investment arms, both the uh, the, 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 the sort of Soros Fund Management, which manages the endowment, but also our impact investment arm, which is inside the foundation, to start trying to find financially long term viable media models you know because the 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 sort of you've pointed to the biggest failing of the grant making solution which is you you know it, it 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 becomes permanent subsidy and you know even wealthy foundations can't sustain the kind of level of funding needed but it doesn't stop there it tends to be media which then kind of freezes where it is you know it 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 you know you know for example where you support some newspaper groups or radio groups there's a risk that actually youngsters are going to completely different media sources for their media and you know you've removed the commercial incentive for these organizations to reinvent themselves so they can chase their market by providing a subsidy for them
3: hi
2: I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
1: So, you know, the chat, you know, so I I, I feel that we've got to become, you know, uh, sort of an investment innovator in trying to find uh, media opportunities where we can help the owner through investment, you know, introduce new technology, uh, introduce, reach new audiences, find new revenue streams, Mm. and that, you know, we, we shouldn't give up and just flip to a subsidy grant model oh we, we you know with all those people out there you know active on the social media there's got to be a news model that works
0: yeah last question from me and then i'll open it to the audience in the room and then after that i'll turn to the audience online uh and it's about the un where you started you said uh in your talk that um that the sort of the west can't walk and talk at the same time and there, there, there is definitely a bitterness after the COVID vaccine debacle and a feeling among those in low-income countries that actually they don't care about our lives and mm. it's very profound i think um what can the u.n do the most important central multilateral institution in the system Uh, to rebuild the spirit of global cooperation which is painfully absent at the moment Mm. and are we beginning to see some signs of that as we hear some in the west talking about having to do something about the food and fuel crisis the concerns about the risk of famine the concerns about a future debt crisis in Mm. the developing world Uh, do you think that we are beginning to see the realization that we can't Carry on like this, and that we need to think of a slightly more integrated view of the world and its problems.
1: You know, I, I, I um, um, I, I, I hope so, but I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I actually think the uh, deterioration in the standing of the UN as a consequence of Ukraine has, I'm afraid to say, accelerated. And, you know, I used the term online movement earlier the other phrase around the un at the moment a lot is league of nations you know a feeling that you know this this fundamental um failure around ukraine at the political level um you know is is a sort of the equivalent of abyssinia or whatever you know mm. uh, in 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 the case of the league of nations you know i i, I I think this is completely overblown because you know when you've had permanent members of the security council divided on previous conflicts the UN has been done no better than it has done this time often mm. you know I think in my time with Kofi a legendary and remarkable secretary general you know it didn't stop him using his good offices in a much more dynamic way mm. than has happened since or before often um, but, you know, I, I think the UN is 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 struggling with this. And I would just say that, you know, the one area where it has made some modest progress around the visit of the Secretary General to Moscow and Kiev, and um, uh, Mark Lowcock's successor, uh, Martin Griffiths, a Brit, has been critical in this, um, has been some of these brief... Humanitarian corridors, like produce, providing, getting hundreds of civilians out of Mariupol, but not thousands, and it's been the ICRC and OCHA, the humanitarian office of the UN, which you know have scored these very modest achievements. But you know, <laughs> if, if, if there's a lesson from that, it's you know the, the UN I knew um, and began in as a young refugee officer. Um, was a UN which was excellent at sort of technical assistance to post-colonial countries on their agricultural or education (laughs) sectors and excellent at humanitarian support to countries that had gotten caught up in Cold War proxy wars. So, you know, I earned my spurs in Southeast Asia after Vietnam then in the Horn of Africa, then in Central America, South Asia, you know, and in each of these cases there was a sort of a Russian American Soviet American standoff to or allowance for a space Mm. for the UN to come in and deal with the massive human surges and migration flows and displacements that were a consequence of these proxy wars. But you know, the UN was never allowed anywhere near the table when it came to the political resolution of these crises. And in a sense, we've seen that played out in Ukraine. Mm. Okay, you can come and help get these civilians out. You can sort that out because it's embarrassing for all sides that this is happening. And mm. But don't, don't pretend that you're going to have a seat at the table when it comes to the political negotiation. And so, you know, I, I see a UN journeying back in time to that sort of pre-89, where you know it had a big office with a door, political affairs on it, and mm-hmm. Security Council affairs, and you know, but it was of almost no value uh in, in terms of world peacekeeping and solution. It, went, it did peacekeeping, but it was of no value in terms of peacemaking and solutions, except in small wars at, in out-of-the-way places. And mm-hmm. Um, you know, great success in Central America, even at the height of the Cold War in, in, in that sense, for example. But that, I'm afraid, is where the UN is being pushed back to. Again, just perhaps one last other little sort of green shoot of possible good news. You know, I'm very struck, spending half my time in New York and going across to the UN quite a lot, that some of the more enlightened ambassadors... You know, are actually taking advantage of this moment to try and create some small reforms, but of the kind, you know, the butterfly that starts flying on one side of the world and actually creates a tornado on the other side. You know, and 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 you know, there's a little bit of that going on. So small small examples. Taking Russia off the Human Rights Council, it's actually made the Human Rights Council a better place. Mm. Taking Russia off the NGO committee that accredits NGOs has allowed with luck some NGOs which have been blocked by Russia for years to get accreditation into the UN. And third and perhaps most significant, a long, that serving PR from Liechtenstein. I mean, if you're, you know, what else do you, I mean, only one good public sector job in Liechtenstein, <laughs> ambassador to the UN. So they've, you know, they've sent their best guy there and he's been there forever. And, you know, he's sort of very cleverly come in and put it, this resolution, which the General Assembly adopted, that every time a P5, permanent five member of the Security Council, exercises its veto in future there will be a general assembly a vote on that now constitutionally the ga can't overturn it but it's taking a principle first used at the time of the korea war where the soviets and you know blocked action in the security council the general assembly did a, a you know a, a resolution at that time and there was a deployment of an american force labelled as a UN force. It wasn't Mm the happiest experience for everybody involved. But, you know, that tension and the feeling that the GA is a more democratic forum than the council, you know, is now going to get great increased legitimacy and authority from what the one hand seems a small technical change, Mm -hmm. but I suspect one which will over time, Mm -hmm. you know, create real ripples and start to change things. So you know, I, I'm I'm not in the League of Nations school, but I do think it's a difficult, pretty barren period for the organisation. And, you know, I think everybody who cares about it needs to find whatever green shoots we can to sort of nurse and cultivate.
0: Okay, very good. I'm going to turn to the audience now, if you could raise your hand and... Um... I'm going to start with the woman here and then the gentleman behind her and then the one right behind. And if you could just introduce yourself briefly and then I'll take three questions in one go. That's all right. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for these interesting insights. My name is Isolde Higemann. Um, I study social policy here at LSE. And I just wanted to ask a question in Hungary because um, you mentioned young leaders um, that might have momentum. You mentioned universities and universities. Uh, the young leader of the opposition for the fourth time in a row now, the opposition could not beat um, Fidesz. Um, The CEU, for example, was forced out of the country um, and universities are being privatized and foundations held by party members. So I wanted to ask, what are your hopes for Hungary? Hmm. And also what levers um, do actors like this um, open society foundation still have in such countries? Thank you. Okay. Gentleman just behind her.
3: Hello, my name is Etienne Coppel. I work for Article 19. We're an international human rights organization specialized in freedom of expression. Um, my question is for Lord Malik Brown. Um, what was the motivation behind the restructuring of OSF? And what does that mean for um, o- NGOs and media actors who look to you for support, and specifically for smaller local organizations um, who now have to turn to one of six regional programs? Thank you.
4: And then the, the woman just behind. Uh, hi, I'm Mathilde. I'm a political science student here at the LSE. Um, I don't know if it's a relevant and useful question in
0: this day and age, but I would love to hear your answer anyways. Do you Did you ever believe in the end of history, and do you believe in it today? Oh, good question. Okay. Very good.
1: All right. Well, look, on those, first on the hungry CU one, we've, um, you know, um, Salil, are you running away before you... Before you, before I say that Article 19 needs to go to you for a grant, um, <laughs> he's your man, right? <laughs> um, okay, but the the um, um, on the hungry CEU point. I, I mean, I I think the um, we, as you know, moved CEU to Vienna, um, and it's sort of caused a lot of heartache for all of us because you know, to be honest, Budapest is a much Better place for it. It was meant to, you know, capture uh, the whole sort of and and be an exciting part of the whole change in 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 Central Europe, and to, you know, offer educational opportunities to people from the region and, latterly, from all over the world, uh, which you know were affordable and supported by scholarships and free tuition, etc. And um, you know, moving it to Vienna you know, in a sense, m- removes the symbolism of, of you know, being in a new democracy as Hungary w- initially was. Um, but, you know, it, the situation had become intolerable and so move we had to do. And, you know, it, 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 it is tragic um, that George Soros, as, you know, really one of the champions of Hungary, both during the 80s and then after 1989, you know, Ends up, uh, you know, vilified uh, in the country, um, you know, and every now and again, Victor Orbán, who was at one point a youth leader who'd been given a scholarship by George Soros, yeah. uh, and who's part of Party Fides, were initially a a, a liberal party, um, and you know, irony of ironies, George Soros, because I at the time in my political consulting world. I had a team in Hungary uh, pushed me to go and give training in how to win elections to Fidesz. Um, so you know, George, you and I, did a good job. Yeah, Mark. yeah uh, George and I both feel you know, we, we he more than me, but we've uh, you know certainly had it thrown back at us and then some. And and you know, and 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 you know what we've seen in this is you know, some of the worst ghosts of Central Europe past, the sort of dubating, bashing of the past, the um, vilification of Jewish financiers, you know, stuff dragged out of, you know, a dark period of the first half, you know, earlier part of the 20th and 19th centuries history. Uh, although interestingly, the, the campaign plan, which Orbán executed in terms of making George Soros the poster boy for, you know, the undermining of the Christian conservative Hungary by encouraging migration by, you know, bringing foreign investment into the country. That game plan was not written by, you know, the f- fantastical minds with the ghosts of a past Central Europe in their head. It was a couple of Republican consultants in New York State who tried to flog this plan to others around the world, not not with George's name written in, but, you know, know, find a Jewish financier to trash. It works really well if you're running a right-wing campaign. And, um, you know, so it ended up, you know, Orbán, the secondhand campaign plan from these guys. <laughs> uh, and you know it is you know that in a sense the clearest example of you know how you know initially you can get elected through you know this really kind of nasty fake news, race to the bottom appeal around issues like migration and then once in by controlling the media, Controlling the state institutions, directing economic support only to those groups that support you in election, easily identified in Hungary because it's small towns and the countryside versus the cities is how it breaks there. Um, You know, you you can get through four elections and perhaps more before you go. And you know, so I think it is really important. And you know, I think probably really difficult. And I think this last time, probably what happened was, you know, they they sort of wanted to outdo Orbán by getting a small town mayor who was conservative to to run so that they couldn't be outflanked on a bunch of liberal social issues. Mm -hmm. But they didn't get a candidate who would really kind of excite the metropolitan base. Uh, And so, you, you know, they've fell foul again of this sort of master, well-trained campaign strategist. <laughs> um, but it's, it's on, on on the Article 19 point, if I may, I mean, yes, it's right that part of the reorganization is to put much more uh, of the sort of grant-making, decision-making and choice into the hands of our regional programs. Um, and, and that's because, you know, there was a feeling we need you know, to build up regional grantees in the field of human rights that we should be supporting an African infrastructure of human rights activists, etc. But we still have a strong global program of which one of its arms is human rights and a second is free media. Uh, and, um, Salil Chetty, who's fled the the auditorium in a well-timed way, you know, heads our global programs, is based here in London, as is Mary Fitzgerald, head of our expression program, Uh, head of our human rights work, is actually based in Nairobi, but, you know, also available. So we've kept global programs. We've shifted the balance, more regional spending versus a bit less global because, you know, we're classic. Like, you know, we're a microcosm of a world which, you know, people in Asia and in Africa and Latin America want to be, you know, involved in the decision-making of Mm. how funds are spent and who they're, you know, who the grantees are in their region. So, you know, for me, it's a very healthy step towards the fuller democratization of the foundation, but we're very conscious that a smaller organization like Article 19 can get lost in that shift. And we're keen for it not to happen.
4: Okay.
1: And then the third End one, of history. End of history. <sighs> um, I hope I never believed in the end of history. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't promise that in a euphoric moment, um, <laughs> we didn't think this sort of surge of, of, of democracy across the world was, you know, unstoppable. But, you know, I think because at the time, Fukuyama wrote, I was still working as a political consultant and struggling to prevail against some pretty solid dictatorships around the world. Um, you know, I, 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 and then subsequently was at the World Bank and the UN. You know, in both all those three fora, I saw that you know democracies path to permanent triumph (laughs) is going to be a very very difficult and fraught one and you know you didn't flip a switch and change the direction of nations and regions uh direction that easily and that permanently and so you know for me you know i'm not surprised i think you know in a way george and i even though You know, I'm just the kind of middle class Brit and he's had this extraordinary experience of being born and growing up in, you know, in in Hungary with all the revolution around him. You know, both of us are such creatures of and students of political change that we'd at a certain level been disappointed if it had been that easy. Uh, (laughs) It should be a struggle democracy should always be a struggle and it should never be taken for granted and we should always have to fight for it.
0: Okay, thank you. Let's turn to the online audience uh, with some questions from there. Uh,
3: So the first question is from Celia Wright from the um, OSF. There are certainly many ways that we can respond to rising authoritarianism, which are priorities at the Open Society Foundation and most importantly, How did open society make the decision to prioritize prioritize these and not others?
0: Okay, give us another one.
3: The question number two is from Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Reflecting on philanthropy, Martin Luther King once said, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice, which make philanthropy necessary. How do we reconcile philanthropy that of which is concentrated in the hands of a few um, through dramatic wealth accumulation with a just and open society? What role should foundations, for example, play towards rebalancing the very systems that enable their creation and continued operations? Okay, very good.
1: Right, well, let's take those Cecilia's first. Um, um, You know, look, the the development of the strategy is in some ways still a process underway but you know it, it, when we looked across what our programs were doing in the different regions and globally you know there was a tremendous sort of overlap of of priorities this feeling that the fight for democracy was the central task but that the sort of that the the the, the areas where you won that um you know were these different different fields of the, you know the restoration of a free media that really offered people choice around things, um, uh, addressing issues of inequality and climate, um, uh, and you know these really and and addressing the whole issue of you know the infrastructure of human rights and the support to effective human rights defenders uh, in in different countries, and that you know while in the past all of this had been a little bit sort of opportunistic and intuitive that you know we need to put a lot more science in around what actually does work. I mean you know I, I for years uh, coming from a World Bank UNDP background used to be resisted by the leadership of the foundation when I was a board member and certainly by George Soros and his son Alex, when I would say we need monitoring and evaluation and learning, you know, that's all right for the Gates Foundation uh, because they're doing, you know, development things that you can measure. You cannot with human rights and democracy measure it. And, um, you know, and I've had to put up with this for years (laughs) and the great advantage of being president, is now I get to do it. And I must say, you know, having now, Done it. I do kind of half get what they mean, <laughs> that some of these things are not that easy to measure, yeah. but you've got to find ways of measuring them because you've got to be a learning foundation with a learning loop. That means that, you know, when you get things wrong, that lesson is understood and shared across the foundation and you refine how you make particular kinds of interventions. And in a sense, being a dynamic learning organization Starts to come to the second uh, question, which is about the sort of economic injustice that allows philanthropy. And I partly answered it with Darren Walker's uh, Ford Foundation's president's observation that, you know, we are the only foundation which actually bites the hand of the capitalism that created us, <laughs> you know, and very much at the behest of, of, of George and Alex's his, his son and deputy chairman's say so. Um, but it, 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 I think, goes wider than that, it, 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 you know, because not just us, but if you look at all the big foundations in the US, uh, not the older generation, the Rockefellers and Fords, the new generation, which is Gates and ourselves, and the newer generation still, the new West Coast philanthropies coming out of the different IT fortunes, you know, there was a time when our interventions both domestically in America and around the world, you know, were received pretty benignly as, well, that's very nice that these rich Americans are giving something back. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've watched myself over the last decade, that reaction get properly much more political. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the legitimacy of what you're doing? And occasionally that demand for accountability and transparency about what we're doing, tips into new conspiracy theories, you know. So, you know, Bill Gates, big conspiracy theory out there in the social media that he's invested in big pharma. So, you know, COVID is his way of selling vaccines, Um, you know, which parallels, you know, some of the sort of social media conspiracies around, you know, George Soros that, you know, he's trying to encourage groups like Black Lives Matters because he's trying to destabilize American democracy in order to, uh, you know, speculate. speculate. And, you know, then maybe he's a Manchurian candidate who wants to put a socialist in power in America. You know, so what you're seeing is you know, something which goes beyond George the Jewish financier being vilified to a bigger issue around the legitimacy of foundations in today's world. And I take this very seriously because while I think the sort of the extremes and the social media conspiracies are disgraceful and absurd, I think the core concern, you know, money's made in this vast amount through, you know, either sort of, you know, because markets allow that to happen, you know, it behoves those who then spend the money, whether it is the money, man who's made it or his professional managers, such as myself, to meet the very highest standards we can of transparency and integrity around that spending. And, you know, because otherwise I have great sympathy for the legitimacy
2: argument. Mm.
0: Let me come back to the audience in the room and see if there are any more questions. Andres and then the woman back here, and I'll take the woman in the very back and then I'll I'll come to you in the next round.
2: Thank you, Minush, and thanks, Mark, for a wonderful talk. I would like to go back, if I may, to the very beginning. You began, Mark, by saying something that strikes me as very right, that we worried about lots of things over the last 15 and 20 years, and we took off the ball from the main issue, namely liberty and democracy. And then when you sat down, Minush asked what I thought was just the right question, namely, will the war in the Ukraine help us focus and will it energize democracies or catalyze? I forget which verb you used. You seemed a bit skeptical. Um, and I wanna go back to that issue. And I would like to ask you to put on your hat, which we haven't, you haven't worn for a while of a political consultant because it seems to me that democracy or democracies have a massive marketing and branding problem. Um, as the issue gets described nowadays, there's something called the West. And the west is fighting for democracy in ukraine and there's something called the global south which are a bunch of people sitting around waiting for the west to come rescue them and of course because the west is otherwise engaged the global south is upset if that is a characterization um then the west or you know if the west is democracy's defender democracy is toast right because first of all that characterization is hugely inaccurate from a purely empirical point of view India's a democracy, flawed, albeit, but Indonesia's a democracy, and so is Japan, and so is Korea, and so is Brazil, and so is Colombia, and none of those countries are part of the West. Um, In addition to that, as you pointed out toward the end, those countries want, you know, to have a say on their own future, so this view that they belong to some sort of homogeneous blob called, you know, the Global South, and the main problem in the world is that the west is not paying attention to the global south that's deeply offensive to a lot of people bottom line they have a serious i mean democracy as sold by the west has a serious branding problem can you solve that problem for us in the next two minutes <laughs> <laughs> okay
0: i think the woman here and then the one in the very back
4: hello uh, i'm martha i'm from the um Global Engagement Team here at LSE and forgive my fumbled two-pronged question um, relating to the uh, US politics and US media. Um, Currently in the US, the media is being led by Fox News, headed up by Rupert Murdoch, a white billionaire. Um, Fox News is currently spewing a lot of hate speech around the Great Replacement Theory at the moment, whilst repealing votes in black communities Um, these messages are being picked up and run with. Um, How is it that you tackle those huge critics of democracy that are being swallowed and taken in by so many Americans? And at the same time, you mentioned the Soros family investing um, in US politics. What are their visions for their gifts within US politics that I would imagine be with the Democratic Party or with um, other other individuals that aren't related to either the Democrats or Republicans? And how can the two be, how is it that, I I think that's my question. (laughs) It's a big question. (laughs) Politics versus politics, the US politics and the media, how they uh, work and very much um, break away from each other. Okay, and the last one, I think will be the woman in the back.
0: I'm gonna. All right, I'll take two more. I'm gonna ask you to give short answers because I've
4: got two more questions in the front here that <laughs> I'm gonna try and squeeze in. So um, I, I see we have um, a theme on democratic media, but I actually want to ask a broader question about digital technology, and um, inquire whether you think uh, public fascination with, or public faith in the democratic potential of information and communication technology has run its course. And more specifically, um, how open should so-called open societies be towards the tech industry? So when we're looking at a, you know trillion dollar companies like Apple or Alphabet, how can the third sector or civil society innovators reasonably compete under these circumstances?
0: Very good. And will you introduce yourself?
4: Sorry, Sita Pena in Department of Media and Communications, LSE. Great.
1: Look, let me very quickly then, I do want to make sure we have time. So um, let me very quickly respond on these. And therefore, I'm going to be able to duck doing even a two minute issue of, uh, of rebranding of democracy. But, you know, and I think that at the beginning of this crisis, you know, we talked a lot in OSF about how can we you know, press countries to vote to condemn Russia in the General Assembly so that this is not Russia versus the West, but Russia versus the rest. And, you know, that was achieved because, as I say, there isn't a country out there that really, you know, other than Eritrea and Syria, and that's about it, that doesn't sort of believe this was, you know, a terrible abuse of the UN Charter, what happened. Um, So, you know, but the, 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 the issue is that, you know, it's not just that the great, the global South is sort of waiting hands out to be rescued, um, you, you know, by by the West. Uh, as you know, and you acknowledged, as you said it, nothing would annoy them more than that characterization, and rightly so. Um, it's that, you know, they do need the West collaboration to get the G20 debt restructuring thing in place, to get SDRs recycled, to give them the fiscal headroom to to, to get through this next period. They need innovation at the IMF and the World Bank to get, you know, a better resourced green transition and recovery. Because the West has kept a dominant hold on these institutions. And yet, these are the institutions that Governments are steered to to get in place the financing plans to address the food, the energy, the debt, and the green recovery agenda that they are also intently facing. And it's the you know and 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 so that's part of it. You know, have, don't get blinkered around Ukraine, except we're in a two two-front war here. We've got Ukraine and a security crisis in Europe, which could still easily spin into a European war, but we've also got a global economic crisis, which will almost certainly claim many more lives through Mm. hunger and other issues. So, you know, how do we have the bandwidth to deal both? And that would demonstrate to people a democratic international system that was responsive to demand rather than one driven by a few owners around one agenda uh, only. And so I think, you know, it comes back. You know, I I suspect if we focus group the word democracy, we all know that it wouldn't do terribly well at the moment. Um, And that would be amongst our own here in the UK as well as around the world. So, you know, a language around results and human security and addressing people's needs And, you know, a refashioning of democracy to deliver on that is, for me, I think, where we've really got to take this. The Fox News issue, uh, just... um, Where do you start? You know, where do I start? Um, (laughs) One of the happier things is, I mentioned that I'm sort of an expert on, on electoral counting systems. I'm happily Hoping that my pension is going to be covered by the fact that the company I chaired until uh, the last US election um, has sued Fox News for $6 billion uh, (laughs) because they accused us of having stolen the US election on behalf of the dead President Chavez of Venezuela. Um, So I'm very much hoping that, you know, my happy retirement and golf handicap coming down will all be paid for by Mr. Murdoch, but hasn't happened yet. But, you know, in the meantime, it's the the serious bit of the question is true. I mean, Fox has had a, a terrible impact on the quality of US democracy and there are counterparts around the world which are doing the same thing. And, you know, we are trying to challenge that by supporting you know, alternative free media. Now, to be honest, you know, we're trying to do it at some of the state and local level in the US, but in general, someone said earlier, how does civil society compete against a well-funded IT sector? Well, the same is true in the media. We are tending to concentrate our efforts to rebuild media, not in the US and the world's really expensive media markets, but in countries which, unless something happens, are trending in the same direction as the U S the Brazil's other countries where you can see Fox news is in the making, mm. you know, we're, we're trying to focus our interventions, uh, there because, you know, it, it is, you know, just, just beyond it. Now I can't read my own handwriting. The tech
0: giants and civil society. And yeah. Well that, you know, giants. yeah.
1: And that exactly goes to that point that, you know, um, know i remember osf at one point wondered whether it should create a kind of pbs bbc (laughs) facebook you know a a you know a public service social media platform and (laughs) you know we did the maths and you know even this very wealthy foundation you know was not going to make that happen unless it put you know every penny it had behind it um and so instead we've gone you know heavily invested into the regulation of this sector you know we've been very engaged in brussels which is the lead regulator there you know we're trying to take the lessons of what's worked in europe to the us and to the asian markets and what we're seeing you know is very different faces of the challenge in the different markets in the us you've got all the invention going on uh, but no regulation Uh, In Europe, you've got a much tamer sort of social media platforms, basically the localized versions of the American ones, but, you know, much more political will to regulate. And in Asia, we're seeing governments and civil society starting to wake up and, you know, looking for regulatory models to, 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 to borrow, so, you know, we look at this as a very important part of our work in the next few years.
0: Thank you. I'm going to squeeze in two more yeah. questions the woman here and then Mo.
3: Thank you, uh, Chair. Um, well, no questions. I am Lul Asayoum. I just wanted to say thank you to our speaker uh, for being uh, someone who sticks up and not bend with the wind. <laughs> And uh, you are on my list of people who make me reconsider my campaign against cloning. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for being you. At the same time, uh, I would like to thank the chair, uh, not only for being the role model that you are for women, but also for creating for us a platform like this. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. Thank you. And Mark?
2: Um, thank you very much, indeed. Um, I'm Mark Locock. I used to work on humanitarian affairs at the UN. And now, among other things, I'm a visiting professor here at the LSE. So thank you, Mark, for a predictably insightful and wide-ranging and stimulating conversation. As I hope everybody in the room knows, Minouche, a year or so ago, published a book on the, the requirement for a new social contract, what we owe each other. So I wanted to ask you, what is the complementarity or the overlap or the synergy between what you've been talking about and the work of the foundation and what Minouche has set out in What We Owe Each Other?
1: Thank you, Mark, for an opportunity to make a really important point, because I think that, you know, that what Minouche wrote in that book is exactly, exactly where we need to go. Um, and, you know, I'm, she's now been translated into 12 languages. Um, and, you know, I, I, and I, and I think it is, you know, in her case, it's very much about, you know, bringing, you know, government down to the people around, you know, meeting these basic social contract issues that, you know, Minuchin you were very influential in UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres' Borrowing of a lot of the language around this, in in his our report, future, yeah. yeah, our Common Future report, yeah. and I think it is critical. But I think, you know, in a way, it is this national and local level where it really matters. And I think, you know, an example of that is, you know, at the same time that these this has been a horrible decade for national leaders in and governments and its quality in general, it's been a pretty good decade for cities and mayors. Yeah. Why? Because mayors have generally got it. They've understood that what gets them re-elected is not highfaluting ideas. It's kind of making the schools work and the police work and the health system work. And, you know, and, and so I look at the different fortunes over the last 10 years of mayors and national leaders as a sort of, you know, interesting exemplar of this point that, you know, people are telling us, you know, don't give us these big labels like democracy, you know, or at least don't hide behind them. I mean, I'm not pretending we drop the term democracy, but don't hide behind them and say, you've got to vote for Democrats because of the sort of value implicit in democracy. You've got to vote for Democrats because Democrats are accountable Democrats can be kicked out when they start to fail. Uh, And, you know, Democrats only succeed when they deliver for you to allow their re-election. And that, you know, very simple core proposition about democracy is what makes it a system much more able to renew itself and much more accountable and therefore more able to deliver than autocracies, which you know, have a lifespan around the life of the leader. Uh, You see them getting more and more rigid as time goes on, less and less effective at delivering. Almost always built into their DNA is a neglect of government because most of them have come to power around cutting government, you know, uh, reducing uh, what it delivers. And so, you, you know, democracy, when it embraces a social contract, the kind Manoush described, you know, has a set of built-in advantages, which it's been very poor in recent years at exercising and delivering on.
4: Okay,
0: Thank you, Mark. So I think there are very few people in the world who could have covered the breadth of topics that you've done this evening, ranging from The future of democracy, the shape of the international system, Fox News, voting machines, the future of capitalism, uh, what's happening in Hungary, what's happening in Sri Lanka. It's it's kind of extraordinary, Mark. And you talked about thin reeds and green shoots. Um, Listening to you made me think it's, it's far less fragile than that. I think this is a very hard time. To feel optimistic about the state of the world. Uh, sometimes it feels like the four men of the of the four horsemen of the apocalypse have shown up at our doors. Um, but listening to you has been a complete treat, and I think everyone will walk out of this room feeling a bit more hopeful about the state of the world and really grateful that you play such a big role in it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening.